The next visiting professor was Dr. Tony Saab, who met with Dr. Tom Cartwright from Ocala, Florida to see patients in his clinic. Dr. Cartwright began by presenting a patient with metastatic colon cancer. The first patient is a 73-year-old white male. He's a former high school football coach and retired principal. As I said to Tony, I actually took care of his father probably 20 or 30 years ago when he had small cell lung cancer. But he unfortunately presented with stage four colon cancer. He's had a variety of treatments over the years. In spite of everything, he's done really quite well. He tolerates the treatment well. We talked to him a little bit. He and his wife go on all kinds of trips to Europe, cruises, and he's been able to do this in spite of all this chemotherapy. But most recently, he's been on bevacizumab until progression, and then just recently, he had a PET-CT scan which showed progressive disease. It didn't look real bad, but he had some new liver metastases, some new adenopathy. And so before I saw him, I had thought about what options we should consider with him. He's had full fox quite a bit. Surprisingly, he still doesn't have any neuropathy from it. He had full fury as a single agent. And so we, after talking about it, we decided to start him on full fury of Flibercept today as a treatment. So we briefly discussed what some of the side effects were, what he could expect with it. And I think when we left him, he was going back to the treatment infusion center to get his first treatment. So, Tony, I'm curious what your perception is about this latest treatment and this series of treatments that he's receiving. Interesting, now he's had multiple treatments with bevacizumab, and now you're trying, and I don't know whether this is fourth, fifth, or whatever line therapy, you're trying full theory of Flibercept. What are your thoughts about that? And I guess another thing that maybe would be out on the table would be regorafenib. But what are your thoughts, Tony, about options now and even what the next option might be beyond this? So this is actually very relevant because this was pretty much the discussion we've had. So the thoughts were, one, he technically never failed full theory and also doesn't seem to have failed Folfox significantly, although he's had a lot of exposure to Folfox. He's had a lot of exposures to bevacizumab. And so the thought was that Folfiri would make sense. He's seen has never failed it. But Folfiri without a biologic is not, and I put quotation mark, a very strong candidate. It seems that Folfiri plays really well with biologics, and this is where you actually almost supercharge, and again, between quotation marks, the effects of it. So the thought was, one, you could go with Folfiri bevacizumab, but this patient has seen a lot of bevacizumab. So the choice of Ziv-Aflibercept or Aflibercept would make a lot of sense given the velour data. Now, of course, this is a blurred line of therapy since he's had a multitude of therapies. But again, since he's not technically failed Folfiri, it made sense. The other option would have been and would have been acceptable. Folfox would have been acceptable, but I think beyond that point, he's seen enough of it. Regorafenib is certainly an option. The problem with regorafenib, and this is where it's important, you know, through discussions with the patient, he is someone who seems to be doing extremely well and is probably still a great candidate for more aggressive therapy. At the same time, some of the toxicities of regorafenib which unfortunately can include some profound fatigue, were not acceptable to that patient. So given the fact that I think he needed stronger treatment, more combinatorial treatment, 
and the fact that rigorafenib may not be an optimal choice right now for this patient. The choice was fulfiria, flibercept. Rigorafenib could certainly be used as a salvage regimen if this one doesn't work. But there's also the possibility of reintroducing Folfox before even getting to rigorafenib. What did you talk to him today about in terms of toxicity? He's already heard the bevacizumab story quite a few times. What more did you talk to him about in terms of what to look out for? This patient actually said to us, he's had so much treatment, he thinks he's earned his MD degree. <laughs> I said, well, not quite. But so he wanted to know what was the difference between a flibercept and bevacizumab. And, you know, I explained to him some of the side effects can be the same. Nosebleeds, hypertension, his blood pressure is well controlled. That actually was a problem before. I did mention fatigue seems to be a little more of a problem because, as I said, this person is quite active going on trips, things like that. But he's had full fury before, so some of the other side effects of diarrhea, he's, you know, he's aware of that. So the main thing I told him, he may notice a little more fatigue. But you don't want it. Sometimes you don't want to plant that seed or suggest it to patients either. So then it's, you said he had some issues with hypertension with the bevacizumab? Yes, the patient was somewhat actually overweight. He's actually lost quite a bit of weight, and his blood pressure did fluctuate, but for the last six months or a year, it's been under pretty good control. So when I mentioned hypertension, he said, well, yeah, I had that before, but my blood pressure's been good lately. And I'm curious what the current thinking is, Tony, about the toxicity of a flibercept. There was the initial thought coming out of the Valor study that there's more toxicity than with Bev. You know, I've heard people say more chemotoxicity, slower recovery from chemo. What's sort of the latest on that thinking? So I think the thinking is still close to the same. It's very difficult to compare toxicities across multiple trials since they've never really been put to the test in the same trial. I do think from my own experience as well as from the studies that there are more toxicities with aflibercept that seems to be toxicities that are related to the chemo that are enhanced. For example, with fulfiri, and I've noticed that in some of the patients I've treated with fulfiri, bevacizumab, as a last-ditch effort, just switched the biologics, that they've had toxicities such as fatigue and diarrhea, which have been seen on velour as enhanced, were actually worse, although the backbone wasn't changed. So I do believe that there is that additional toxicity. But frankly, it was tolerable, actually. And my modifying the dose of the fulfiri without touching the aflibercept in that particular patient, actually, there was an improvement of the toxicity. So they may not be inherent to the aflibercept itself. They may be just a worsening of the chemotherapy related toxicities, which could be actually improved by modifying the dose. The fatigue itself may be inherent to the biologic itself. I frankly don't think it's as significant as, and again, between quotation mark, advertised. It is not pleasant in its most severe forms, but it's not usually a severe level of fatigue. He's now had multiple lines of therapy, and as you mentioned, Tony, at some point, regorafenib maybe is going to come out on the table as a possibility. I'm curious, I'm going to start with Tom and ask what his observations have been in terms of using regorafenib, particularly in terms of toxicity and dosing. My site participated in the regorafenib expanded access trial, so we treated quite a few patients on that. Those patients were heavily, heavily pretreated, and they didn't have 
three, four, but they had sometimes five, six, and more lines of therapy. So it's a drug that some people think it's an oral drug, it's milder, easier, but it's a drug you have to monitor very closely. You can't write a prescription for regiravenib and say, take this for three weeks and come back in a month. You really have to see the patient weekly, at least off the bat, monitor them, talk to them about hand, foot, diarrhea, fatigue, liver enzymes. So I have treated patients as part of the trial, off the trial. It's very unpredictable. I have some patients that have a lot of fatigue. The family brings them in a wheelchair because they're so tired. And the next person comes in and say, I'm not fatigued at all. I'm able to work 12 hours a day and so forth. So it's you know, it's a drug I don't think anybody has a tremendous amount of experience with. I think it's a lot of these drugs, as we use them more, we understand how to manage some of these side effects and AEs. But it is something that the toxicities can be quite... Now, again, you're treating patients that have had three, four, five, six lines of therapy that are fairly... may have a poorer performance status, so maybe anything's going to have some toxicity. It'd be interesting to see what some of the newer trials giving it an early lines of therapy may have. But I think the key thing in my experience is monitor the patients closely, educate the patients, and do make dose reductions as needed. Not a lot of patients can tolerate 160. Most patients need 120 or even 80. I was going to ask you that. I want to ask Tony also. In general, how do you approach initial dosing? Do you generally use the 160? If not, how do you approach it? Well, I mean, the label says 160, but it depends on the patient. If it's a patient that's been heavily pretreated, is, you know, a decreased performance status, I'm usually starting at 120, and I invariably would see the patient in a week or have my nurse practitioner see them just to go make sure that they're tolerating it. So I would say uh, the patients I've treated, probably a half or two-thirds at 120, maybe a third at 160. I know 160 is a labeled dose, but it's just, most people just can't tolerate that. Tony, same question. What have you observed in terms of toxicity and how do you approach dosing? To recapitulate this, the toxicity is mostly related to fatigue, which can be quite profound. Hand and foot syndrome, which happens actually pretty quickly within the first two weeks, unlike the other related TKI, so rafinib, and it can be quite profound and disabling, but the good news, it's reversible. The fatigue is actually the biggest problem on the long run. You know, in terms of dosing, that's where I have a philosophical issue of how to start those. And it's not just relating to regorafenib, but it could apply to sorafenib and sunitinib and a lot of the other TKIs that tend to have higher toxicities at higher dosages. My only problem with regorafenib and starting it at a lower dose other than the FDA label or the approved dose is the fact that if you look at this group of patients we're treating with regorafenib, their median progression-free survival is about two months and an average survival of close to four months or so. So I look at this from the standpoint of an urgency. If I want to induce any chance for an improvement in outcome, I don't have a lot of time to actually work around the dosages. And so I bite the bullet and I explain to the patient closely what to expect. And I start with a higher dose and de-escalate as needed. And it's, again, it's the setting that we're starting. Think about it like this. We have about 20 to 30% of the patients who probably should tolerate the highest dose. So the question is, should I 
overtreat 70 for the benefit of 30 or should I undertreat the 30 that are, by the way, more likely to benefit at the expense of the 70? And that is the main conundrum, you know, when deciding on the dose. I'm kind of curious from both of you also whether or not you've seen patients you felt benefited. We know responses, particularly in these very late-line patients, are not that common. But, Tom, have you had patients where you felt like they were actually benefiting from the regorafenib? Yeah, I haven't seen anybody that's had a true response. But another physician oncologist told me he had a patient that had a complete response. I haven't seen that, but I've had patients where their CEA goes down. I have at least a couple patients, one woman in particular, who had rather severe pain from liver metastases. She said the pain went away just within a few weeks of taking the drug. So I've had some patients that have had, I guess, biochemical improvements, some patients that have symptomatic improvement, but I haven't had a, done a scan on it. Well, I've had scans on patients that have been stable or maybe less than 25% improvement. But I haven't seen anybody that's had a true partial response. But then you'd probably have to treat 100 patients to see one. So Same question to you, Tony. Have you had patients, even without a response, that you felt were benefiting? So I do have the occasional patient that has benefited. You know, I've had probably, I would say, 20% of the patients I've treated have had some benefit, including CEA drop. And in fact, one patient had a partial response that lasted for a few months and actually had a decent quality of life. For the other patients, frankly, you know, they progressed very quickly through. But, you know, we have to remember again what line of therapy we're talking about, and your expectations are lower anyways. But I do believe this is a drug that has an effect based on some of the responses we've seen. And perhaps, you know, it would make more sense to move it a little bit higher up the line. So the last question I want to ask both of you about this patient is just more stepping back and looking at him as a person. He's survived now more than five years with metastatic disease. Not a rare situation, but still, you know, pretty interesting. I'm kind of curious, as you've watched him over these last few years, Tom, what have you seen in terms of how this whole experience has affected him and his family? You know, as I said, the patient is a retired football coach, so he kind of has that mentality. He likes action. He likes things done. He doesn't like to be tied to the office. He leads a very active lifestyle, as I said. He still plays golf. It's active. He and his wife go on a remarkable number of trips all over the world. And so I don't think it's impacted his quality of life in a major negative way. And that's some of the treatment. I've tried to give him treatment that can control the disease as long as possible with the least impairment on some of the things he likes to do. So he's always, I don't think he's ever not been an hour early for an appointment. He's always perfectly pleasant, talkative. He does look up stuff on the internet. His wife asked us about some targeted therapy today. She heard from Harvard. So they're quite involved. But I think he's taken it in stride and has a positive attitude towards it. I'm curious, again, sort of looking over Tom's shoulder at this, I'm sure you have tons of patients that you take care of like this, Tony, but, you know, what was your overall global impression of this patient and his wife in terms of how this experience of living with metastatic colon cancer has affected them? So I think the gist of the matter is when I actually was reading the cues and what the patient and his wife were talking outside his cancer is that 
there is this general understanding that time is limited and that this cancer is eventually going to take his life away and that he is taking advantage of every moment he gets to live to the fullest. And he mentioned a trip to Disney where they lived there up in the presidential suite and they spent this money. And then his wife asked a question, how many years do you think we still have or how many months? And well, you know, in maybe another three, four years. So she looks at him and she says, well, maybe we shouldn't be spending that much money. We should <laughs> <laughs> maybe we have more time to spend it. So it was interesting. It's a different perspective. They want to live. And that's the most important thing is that the patient wants to live, doesn't want to just subsist. And this was the choice of treatment. And I looked at the history of treatment that he went through. And it's certainly additional time given to him, but a lot of quality of life by an approach where you have this intense treatment followed by periods of maintenance or no treatment. And I think that actually affected significantly in a positive way, both his survival as well as his quality of life.